Good afternoon, 1208. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. We are live streaming as we have started doing. Starting at the end of last week, we're going to do this on an almost daily basis. If you go to Facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ, you can see what goes on in the studio. We live stream the first segment or two of the program. That's our intention to do. And I know thousands of people have been checking it out over the last couple days. It's also kind of a parlor game. You can look at how I'm dressed and you can decide, did my wife dress me or did I dress myself? You know, it's, it's always one of those games. She said to me this morning, um, I'm going to dress you tomorrow because I've got to do a TV thing promoting our big event. Cream Puff Palooza is Wednesday morning. Mark your calendar. Starting at 6 a.m., I will be out at State Fair Park. We will give the first 300 cars. I'm there with Karen D'Alessandro from our sister station, KTI Country. We will give out six packs of Cream Puffs. It's one of my favorite days of the year until they are gone. Uh, we start at 6 a.m., and it is first come, first serve. Each car gets a six-pack of cream puffs until they are gone. Going on the morning blend tomorrow on Channel 4 to promote that. So my wife was very clear saying, okay, I'm dressing you for that one. You know, you're, you're on your own most days. All right, let us get started. The controversy between the president and the news media so, shows no signs of subsiding. Let me back into this topic. There is no question in my mind that the news coverage of the Trump administration has been the most relentlessly negative coverage that I have ever seen in my lifetime, with the possible exception of the end of the Nixon administration and the Watergate scandal. So putting that brief moment in history aside, there is there's just no question in my mind that you have the, the mainstream media, however you want to define that, lined up and completely and totally appalled by, by President Trump. I, I was mentioning this the other day. There's a Showtime had a four-part series called The Fourth Estate that followed New York Times reporters as they covered the first year of the Trump administration. And it it's very clear. You just see this. They loathe. Donald Trump. They just loathe everything about him. You watch the reporters' faces as they're sitting covering press conferences, and they cringe. Now, that is reflected, I think, in the coverage, which is pretty much universally negative. I have always believed if President Trump came out and handed everybody a $100 bill, the headlines in the Washington Post would be, Trump gives you a $100 bill, doesn't even have the decency to cash it. You know, why did you give him 1010s? Who can spend 100 At the same time, I appreciate that President Trump plays into that. First of all, a number of his conservative policies are going to inflame the generally liberal members of the mainstream media. And then he takes them on directly. The whole fake news stuff, the whole enemy of the people stuff. And after a while, if you're being taken on, and in general, I think people in the media tend to have thin skins as a general rule. And if you're not used to that and you have somebody pointing to you when you're covering this and he's doing a press event or he's doing a, one of those rallies and you got 3,000 people and they're turning and he's saying, oh, boo CNN or whatever. I understand why that's not going to necessarily endear you to CNN or the CNN reporter. So I understand why there is all this animosity and I understand the history of it. And quite candidly, I think there's blame to go around, which is not to say that I don't think the news media has in an obligation to be a gatekeeper and to explore what is going on in government. I think that's the the function. At the same time, I I think there's no question that you have a lot of the mainstream press that is, quote-unquote, out to get President Trump, um, and he responds accordingly. So any event, 
Over the weekend, he apparently invites the publisher of the New York Times to, um, this is A.G. Salzberger, um, who, who comes to, he, he comes to, it was July 20th, actually, he comes to a meeting in the Oval Office with the, the president for what is supposed to be an off-the-record meeting. And uh, the publisher of the New York Times brings with him the uh, editorial page writer. And again, this, this is supposed to be this off-the-record conversation. President Trump, over the weekend, sends out um, a, a tweet Sunday morning talking about this meeting, disclosing the fact that they had the meeting. He says it was a very good and interesting meeting where we spent much time talking about the vast amounts of fake news being put out by the media and how that fake news had morphed into the phrase enemy of the people. So President Trump puts that all out. Now, this is supposedly an off-the-record meeting. The New York Times publisher takes the position, wait a second, you know, once once President Trump discloses the existence of the meeting and gives his take on what we talked about, which makes it appear like the New York Times is getting called on the carpet by the president. He says, at that point in time, you know, we consider all bets are off. So the publisher of the New York Times issues a statement. Here's what he said. He criticized, he said, you know, we went there to express our concern about the president's deeply troubling anti-press rhetoric. The publisher writes, I told the president directly that I thought his language was not just divisive, but increasingly dangerous. I told him that although the phrase fake news is untrue and harmful, I am far more concerned about his labeling journalists as the enemy of the people. I warned that this inflammatory language is contributing to the rise in threats against journalists that will lead to violence. Publisher continues, I repeatedly stressed to the president that this is particularly true abroad, where the president's rhetoric is being used by some regimes to justify sweeping crackdowns on journalists. I warned that it was putting lives at risk, that it was undermining the democratic ideals of our nation, that it was eroding one of our country's greatest exports, a commitment to free speech and a free press. He goes on to write, throughout the conversation, I emphasize that if President Trump like previous presidents, was upset with coverage of his administration, he was, of course, free to tell the world. I made clear repeatedly that I was not asking for him to soften his attack on attacks on the New York Times if he felt our coverage was unfair. Instead, I implored him to reconsider his broader attacks on journalism, which I believe are dangerous and are harmful to the country. At which point in time... The president then re- responded with another Twitter message. When the media, driven insane by their Trump derangement syndrome, reveals internal deliberations of our government, it puts it truly puts the lives of many, not just journalists at risk, very unpatriotic. I will not allow our great country to be sold out by anti-Trump haters in the dying newspaper industry. And then he calls out the New York Times and the Washington Post for writing bad stories, even on very positive achievements. All right, let's open up the phone lines. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Here is my question. Is the president's, are the president's attacks on the media, the constant branding of stuff as fake news and the enemy of the people, Is he going too far? Is he undermining democratic institutions? Is he doing damage to journalism? Is he being unfair? Or 
have the coverage, have the way he's been covered by CNN and the New York Times and the Washington Post, has this, have the newspapers, have the TV stations, have they brought it on themselves? I'll tell you where I come down on this, but I'm curious as to your reaction. Are his complaints about fake news, journalists being the enemy of the people, is this legitimate? Is it an accurate reflection of Trump derangement syndrome? Or is there something more going on? 414-799-1620. In addition, if you go to Facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ, you can see us doing the show and participate accordingly. We're back with your calls in just a moment. 1216, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1219, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. A dispute erupts between President Trump and the mainstream media. Apparently there was an off-the-record meeting between the publisher of the New York Times and the president last week. Um, that off-the-record meeting is now gone on the record. And uh, again, President Trump saying it's uh, the it's Trump derangement syndrome. Publisher of the New York Times saying we think the president's rhetoric is dangerous. Here's a text. Let's start off. Jeff, in today's digital age, the media should be called out when pushing fake news stories. On Twitter, the bogus story gets 40,000 tweets, and then the correction gets 200. I maybe wouldn't use some of the harsh rhetoric, but I think it's about time some reporters get called out, to which I have always said, if you want, if you're in the media and you want to not be accused of pushing fake news stories, then don't do it. Don't, just don't, don't rush to a story where the facts are wrong, and when that happens, it's almost always going to be an attack piece on the president. If you don't want to give him the ammunition to do it, then then clean up your act. Now, that's what I would say at first. Now, having said that, do I think journalists are unpatriotic? No, I, I, I don't. Do I think that the constant challenges, and let's call out different reporters as being the enemy of the people, do I think that's fair? No, no, I don't. Uh, but I think there's blame to go around on both sides. Let's start with Bill in Oconomowoc. Bill, you're on WTMJ. Uh, good morning, Jeff. Great Hi, topic. Um, I really think in all of this is we, our nation, our state, we can't divide and conquer. We have to unite and, and survive. I believe we can't take a knee for Russia. we got to stand up for America. I really believe that with our press, the minute you start uh, getting on the press, that's the beginning of an overthrow of our government. Wouldn't you agree? Getting uh, Attacking the press is an overthrow of the government? Yeah. No, no I, w- I, wouldn't, I wouldn't agree with that. I mean, I, if, if, for example, if, if a newspaper writes a story that is slanted or you believe is biased against a public official and the public official calls them out on it, I, I don't think that's an... I don't think that's an attack on or a start of overthrowing the government. So, so in other words, um, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not trying to tell you I'm asking you. What you're saying is uh, we have too much bias in the press. Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm saying, well, yeah, I do think that there's, thanks. I mean, I think there's an element of bias in, in the press. I think, I think there's a lot of blame to go around on both sides, is what I am saying. I think that this president has been subject to more negative media coverage than any president in my lifetime. And I understand he brings some of it on himself. So I, this, this isn't being viewed as a defense of President Trump. But it, it seems to me, and this is, I consume a lot of media in preparation for the show. It seems like it is almost a relentless 
a relentless series of negative stories. Probably nine out of ten, sometimes maybe ten out of ten, are, are negative in ways that I haven't seen, you know, even when you had other sort of Republican presidents. And I think what's happened is because President Trump fights back, because he then goes on the offensive, because he's thin-skinned, you have a thin-skinned media, reporters who don't like to be called out, and they then kind of get upset. Well, how dare he say that we're fake news? And so they dig in their heels. The president digs in his heels. I don't think it's good for anybody. I think there's a lot of blame to go around. That, that's what I'm saying. And, and no, I don't think a, I don't think a politician calling out a, a, a media outlet because he thinks their coverage has been unfair. No, I don't think that leads to the overthrow of the government. I don't think it's a good thing, though, but I think that there's a whole bunch of blame to go around. 414-799-1620. Dave in Waukesha. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. How are you doing? Real well, thank you. What do you think? I think, well, first of all, I, I'm glad he's calling him out. Because number one is, I'm not, I don't agree with, you know, all the things he does as far as his Twitter stuff, you know, with attacking everybody. That right. Moves. But as far as the, the media, I mean, let's face it. I mean, if you watch the debate, it was it was already prevalent there. And look what they did to, you know, George W. Bush. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, they just they, they were relentless. They were just downright mean. Well, I, then, I, know, I mean, you look at Mar- Martha Radish and you look at, you know, some of the other things during the debate on how predisposed they were to. You know, I mean, let's face it, it was biased. Well, I think there is. I think they're right. I think there is unquestionably a, an institutional bias that, that exists. At the same time, I, I think the president is, in some respects, like I keep saying, he's his own worst enemy because he says things which, in many cases, are not capable of verification. How's that? Some people might say he lies. Well, he, he says stuff that's not capable of verification. Politicians do that a lot, but I, I think the president raises this to an art form. He is incredibly thin-skinned, where most people would just say, "Okay, I, I, I let's let's let water roll off my back." He's not that kind of guy. He obsesses, and he has this sort of what I'm going to describe as kind of the New York street fighter mentality. And I don't say it as a negative thing, but you know, he, he's in there. He's punching back. And so you have this fight that breaks out. I think, candidly, the appropriate response to both the president and some of the institutional members of the mainstream media would be almost everybody kind of needs to grow up. All right, here's a text. Trump has his own derangement syndrome. He attacks anything critical of him, even proven fact. Most journalists reports truth. His constant lies, deception, cover-ups, and corruption must be made public. And when it is, he calls it fake. Here's a Franny and Muskego text. This is my biggest problem with Trump, the arrogance with fake news. This is a communist twist of keeping the country stupid if politicians are afraid to be upfront with their constituents. Again, I think the media, and this is coming from somebody who makes his living on a daily basis yeah, under the, the light of the First Amendment, being having the freedom to criticize and politicians if I feel like it. I think that is an important thing that, that is out there. At the same time, I think public officials have a right to respond if they think the criticism is fair. But bottom line of all this is I think just about everybody kind of needs to grow up. Do I think the president's inflamed rhetoric is good for the country? No, I don't. Do I think that the media 
in general, and I'm talking about the mainstream media in broad terms, not a particular reporter in a TV station or a radio station or a newspaper, but I think the media would be do well to be a little bit introspective and maybe for the people at the Washington Post or the New York Times to look at the coverage that they've had of stories and say, all right, did we present this in a fair and balanced fashion? Did we come up with somebody that, you know, makes the point of what the other side is? And I think if they were fair on that, they would say, well, well, no, a lot of the stories we run are extremely critical without representing that other side. I just think both sides need to grow up in this matter and move on because I don't think this ongoing debate is good for the country. 1227, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1229, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, we just took down our Facebook live stream. We are going to be doing this at the start of, of every show for about the first half hour or so, uh, giving you a chance to weigh in and see what's going on in the studio and all. Um, interesting comments. I'll let me share a couple since people took the time to send many of them. The media is not interested in reporting news anymore. They're only interested in being cheerleaders for the Democrats and pushing their liberal agenda. Um, Okay, uh, let's see. Uh, da, 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 uh, oh, Brandon says journalism is dead. Huh, well, I, I don't know that it's that situation. Uh, Sarah says, well said, Jeff. Okay. <laughs> and, and John says, great comments, Mr. Wagner. No, I mean, I'm trying to make sense of this. And, and as often as the case, what happens is there's blame to go around on both sides. I think the president, by being thin skinned, by playing fast and loose with the facts there. I, that's another way of looking at this. I, I think he invites a lot of this criticism, and he picks unnecessary and silly fights. I mean, they, they got off to a bad on a bad footing right off the bat. I was reading one of these interviews with Sean Spicer, the former press secretary, and there's no way I'd ever buy this new book he's got coming out. But, I mean, it, it all starts off by getting into an argument about how many people watched the inauguration, and it goes downhill from there. Who cares? I, I mean, seriously, why end up picking that fight at the same time? And again, if you ever have a chance to watch the Showtime documentary on the New York Times, it's called The Fourth Estate. It's kind of interesting. You just watch these reporters. They loathe Donald Trump. It, it, you watch their facial expressions. And, and, and I understand. I get it. It's, he's not, he, he is not the typical politician. His politics aren't their politics. He's got a style that they find to be offensive, but they just absolutely loathe him. And that comes through in the way that the case, that the situation gets covered. I believe everybody needs to grow up. Just saying. It's 1236, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. WTMJ, that's us, and KTI Country are fired up to share the greatest dessert in Wisconsin. Karen D'Alessandro and I will be handing out six packs of those famous cream puffs to the first 300 cars lined up in the Wisconsin State Fair parking lot. This is going to be right in front of the Pettit Ice Center starting at 6 a.m. Wednesday. That's when we start handing out the cream puffs. People line up before that. It's Cream Puff of Palooza. Stop by for your chance to win. First 300 cars, each one gets a six-pack of Cream Puffs. It is always just a lot of fun. And, of course, State Fair starts the following day on Thursday, which is one of our big events of the year. I will be broadcasting live most weekdays of the fair. I think uh, I'm off on Friday, going to go to Canton, Ohio. See, uh, Jerry Kramer admitted to the Hall of Fame. I was there um a couple years ago when Brett Favre went in and my buddy Evan and I were going back to see it. That should be fun. And I think there's a Brewers game one day next week, an early Brewers game. So um, that will be outstanding. All right. This was 
it was predictable. I guess I thought maybe it would not happen quite as quickly as it did, but but it has. $100 million lawsuit being filed on behalf of people who were killed in that Branson, Missouri duck boat drowning. Uh, 17 people killed, another number of other people injured. Uh, you will remember the story, July 20th. Lake near Branson, Missouri, they had these duck boats. You you know, perhaps you know what a duck boat is. They're, they're big in the Wisconsin Dells. Duck boats are these amphibious crafts, which were designed initially in, in World War II. And the idea was they could get troops, they could transport stuff on the water to the land, and then they, they, they have wheels. So they run on the land as well. So in the Wisconsin Dells, for example, this is a huge attraction. Can I see a show of hands? You've been, been on a Wisconsin Dells duck boat? Well, of course, hands go up all over because that's one of the big things. You go out in the water, you spend some time in the water, and then what you do is you go on land and you motorize, you motorize on land. Not all duck boats are made the same. The original duck boats, and this is like most of the ones, if not all of the ones they have in the Dells, tend to be smaller. What they have done over the years is in an effort to be able to pack more tourists on duck boats, some operators have increased the size of the duck boats. And if you increase the size of the duck boat, it changes the the buoyancy. It changes how well the thing floats if you put more weight on it. Others have put, well, not just canvas tops on them, but they've also put um, enclosures so you can take them out when it's raining i mean if it's you know if it's if it's raining you're not going to go out in a duck boat that, that's open because you're not going to want to get rained on so these have been modified over the years and there's a number of different incarnations what happened in branson missouri and i think it's it's the, the investigation is still going on but i think we pretty much know there were severe storm warnings that were out that day and the boat the operators made a decision, despite the fact that there were storm warnings, they made a decision to go out onto the lake. They got out on the lake. The storm blew in extremely quickly. I don't think it was, it wasn't storming when the boat went out, but there were warnings. Got out on the lake. The storm blew in quickly. Waves started whipping and the boat capsized and, and went under. It was also one of these boats where you had the enclosure and you had the, the tarp over top, and, and people got trapped in it, which is one of the things that led to the drowning. There were life jackets available, but it's in the discretion of the tour operator as to whether or not they want to make you wear, they instruct you to wear the life vests, and my understanding is the people on that boat did not wear the life vests. So a lot of stuff happened. In any event, there is a lawsuit which has just been filed. The attorney uh, earlier this morning had a, had a press conference. Here's what he says. For 20 years, we have known that duck boats are death traps. It was proven again in devastating fashion in Branson, Missouri. It is clear that they knew severe weather was coming, and they tried to beat the storm by going on water first rather than refunding the 40 bucks that each of these people paid, thereby putting their lives at risk. This was not in any way a storm which came out of nowhere. This suit alleges that the owners and operators put profit over people's lives. This tragedy, this is what they say, 
was predictable and predica- predicted was predictable and a predicted result of decades of unacceptable greed-driven and willful ignorance of safety by the duck boat industry in the face of specific and repeated warnings that their duck boats are death traps for passengers and pose grave danger to the public on water and on land noting that the duck boats have been involved in dozens of fatal accidents that the other large one was back in 1999 when you you had a similar sort of thing that happened in Arkansas um that's when 13 people drowned four were killed in a 2002 incident and five were killed in a 2015 incident for its part again for let's take the Wisconsin Dells the folks at the Dells say okay we operate different kind of duck boats ours are smaller and we don't go very far out on the water. We stay close to land. So if there was a sudden storm or something that came up, we could get into land quickly. This particular duck boat was further out. It was larger. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I think there's two issues here. First of all, is this lawsuit going to succeed? And the answer is clearly yes. I think there was a lot of blame to go around here. And I start with the whole notion that who in their right mind takes any sort of vessel like this, especially one packed with tourists, who takes it out in the face of a severe storm warning? I don't care if it wasn't raining at the time. You got a severe storm warning. To me, that's where you put up the sign and you say, all right, while this, we're going to wait till this passes. We're going to wait till the weather clears. We're not selling tickets. And if that means you lose a thousand or two thousand dollars in revenue, all right, so be it. You don't go out on the water. To me, that's where this is first, last, and always. Then you get into issues with the life vests and things like that. So that, that's, that's number one. A lot of blame to go around here, starting with why were they on the water in the first place. But what about the larger question here? And again, I I bring this up because as somebody who has ridden the ducks in the Dells on multiple occasions, I've never felt they were unsafe. And I'm still not convinced they are unsafe. Maybe there's some of these big duck boats that... Maybe they shouldn't be operating. You know, maybe they've changed the design so much. But the idea that you're going to essentially eliminate the duck boat industry, I think that is an overreaction. And while I am not in any way, shape, or form minimizing the loss of life in 1999 in Arkansas and certainly not minimizing the horrible story that came out of Missouri a couple weeks ago, when you consider the tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of people who ride these things over the course of, of a year, statistically, is one death is one death too much? Yes, it is. But statistically, I am not in any way, shape, or form convinced that these are so inherently dangerous that you need to ban all of them. Now, as far as going out when there's a severe storm warning, that's a different story. 414-799-1620. Do we need to ban duck boats, period? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1245, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1247, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, $100 million lawsuit filed in connection with the death of those 17 people on the duck boats in Branson, Missouri. I I, I think the case to me just screams negligence. But the larger issue is, are these duck boats so inherently dangerous that they need to be outlawed? And my point is, 
duck boats, they're, they're, it's not, there's not just one thing. Duck boats are, are different. It's like saying, all right, you know, all roller coasters are the same. They're, they're not. I don't think you need to ban the duck boats. I do think you need to exercise some common sense, though. Here's a text. Jeff, regarding the duck boats, my wife and I took our three kids on a duck's ride a few years ago in the Wisconsin Dells. I had never been on one before. Fortunately, the conditions were calm, but the water line was so high outside the boat that I remember holding on to one of our toddler daughters in the event we encountered a wave and water came over. The boat we were in was from World War II, and that didn't settle well with me either. Um, I just read that when these were engineered for the war, they were intended for ammunition travel and not to carry people. It's fun to be in one, but I wouldn't recommend doing it again, especially with kids. All right, here's another text. Have we banned roller coasters, cars, planes? Of course we don't ban duck boats. Accidents do happen. It's another text. Jeff, the answer is not banning duck boats. I've ridden the ducks over 20 times in the Dells. If protocols are ca- are followed they are safe. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. I've been on the ducks in both the Wisconsin Dells and Boston. Uh, I don't think they're dangerous unless common sense isn't used for, like, weather matters. And I was far more scared of whitewater rafting than I, than I ever been on the ducks. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, especially... Especially the way they do it in the Dells. They're, they're not out. They're always very, very close to the shoreline. And their point is, if a sudden storm springs up, we can get back to the storm quickly. We can be on land. We're not out in the middle of a lake. It's just, it seems to me, Jeff, it's just how you, how you run the operation as to whether or not these things are risky or not. Yeah, I can think of many operations that can quickly become dangerous as common sense is not used. And I don't see places like the Dells doing doing that. Right. No, thanks. See, and that, that, that's why, I mean, they are an, enter, they're an entertainment attraction, okay? And now one of the, one of the things is there, there's not national regulation of these. They're, they're regulated state by state. In Wisconsin, for example, it's the DNR that's in charge of supervising these and, and making sure that they're safe. It's going to vary, again, from state to state as, what, as to what the rules are, just like Okay, we're talking about State Fair at the end of the week. Just like the, the Midway, you know, the rides, th- those are all subject to patchwork registra- regulation. You know, state each state has different rules on what sort of safety things there have to be in and stuff like that. And, and just because you have an accident, for example, something goes wrong on a tilt-a-whirl in, I mean to pick on Branson, Missouri, you know, in you know, somewhere else, that doesn't mean that all the tilt-a-whirls are inherently going to be dangerous. See, here's one of the keys. Dan sends me a text. Jeff, yes, the duck boat company should be held accountable. Walt Disney World suspends all boat traffic and recreational boating when a severe thunderstorm is within a five-mile radius. You know, that's exactly correct. I remember the last time that I last time or second last time that I was at Disney World and the the resort that we were staying in we were going to take a boat to go over to I want to say it's the Animal Kingdom we're going to take the boat ride or whatever and there was a storm rolling in and they said okay no we're we're, we're not going to put people out on the the paddle boats or whatever they had so we're going to suspend that which to me made eminent sense because you don't want to be out on one of those lakes when you have this bad storm that was rolling in to me I, I don't know I don't claim to be an engineer when it comes to boating. If you look at some of the way these duck boats have been altered, again, if you're going to make something substantially bigger, 
well, then you do have to change buoyancy, and, and it's not really necessarily a duck boat anymore. It's a modified duck boat, and you have to end up figuring out. But it starts first and last with making sure you don't go out when there's bad weather. And I, and what I'm about to say, I don't mean in any way, shape, or form to, to victimize the victims. That, that's not the point. The boat shouldn't have gone out. I will tell you this. If I was standing in line and I knew there was a severe thunderstorm warning that was out, I think I'd find something else to do. I don't think I'd even take that risk, but the company shouldn't have gone out in the first place. Do you need to ban the ducks? I don't think so, but a lot of stuff went wrong, and there's going to be some accountability, and there should be. 1252, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1255, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. As a new school year approaches, MPS is doing everything it can to increase enrollment. What more can be done? Gene Miller takes a look. 651 tomorrow on Wisconsin's Morning News. All right, when we come back after the top of the hour news and the 1 o'clock hour of the show, is it time to rename the city of Madison? For all those progressive educated thinkers out there, how can you continue to live in a city that promotes... Well, I don't know, a founder who was a slave owner. Believe it or not, a variation of this debate is going on now in a couple other cities across the country. And if it's good enough for Austin, Texas, why isn't it happening in Madison, Wisconsin? We will be discussing that in addition. Controversy breaking out over the decision of Fiserv, the Brookfield-based company, to become the naming rights sponsor of the New Bucks Arena. Why would that be controversial? And is the controversy legitimate? I will tell you all about that in just a couple minutes as well. But before the top of the hour, I I admit every once in a while there are stories that just, that just hack me off on, for want of a better phrase, on all sorts of levels. Chances are at some point in time you visit a graveyard. Maybe, depending on how old you are, maybe it's your grandparents that are buried there. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your spouse. You know, uh, chances are you go there. And it is a very, uh, it is a very solemn and it is a very emotional experience to go there and stand at the gravesite of one of your loved ones who is no longer there. It just, it affects I think, you know, everybody who's ever been there, and it's a common experience, some of you might go more often than others, but it's just an incredibly emotional experience. That is a sacred place. So here is the story. Friday night, up in, in Merrill, you know, kind of in the Fox River Valley there, Vandal, a Vandal or Vandals, went through two adjacent graveyards up in Merrill, destroyed 114 gravestones, 114 gravestones, some of which had been there over a 100 years. I, I mean, I've seen the pictures of this, turned them over, broke them, smashed them. It is the, the ultimate definition of senseless vandalism, and it's not one or two, 114 gravestones. Story I'm looking at in the Journal Sentinel is just talking about how, you know, some of the, the people who, you know, this, this is their grandparents or in some cases their parents, uh, spouses. They're just, they're heartbroken over this. They're heartsick. They discovered the vandalism on Saturday morning. And it, it's not just a question of however much it's going to cost to fix the vandalism. That, that can be, that can be taken care of. But it's the idea and the sense of violation that comes with this, which raises this question. 
What the hell kind of jack wagon? Who the hell kind of jack wagon does something like this? I, I mean, seriously, I, 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 I there's vandalism, there's senseless vandalism, and then there's running through two graveyards destroying 114 grave markers because it gives you some sort of sick thrill to do that. Now, first of all, as somebody who believes in an afterlife, I do believe there's a special place and you know where for people who do this. And I would not want to be them standing in front of St. Peter 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years from now and having to explain, gee, I went on a rampage in a couple graveyards, you know, destroying these. That's number one. Number two, when the authorities catch them, and my guess is they will, this is one where you do not pass go, you do not collect $200. Maybe this is one of the reasons I'm not a judge, but this is the type of thing that you go to prison for. I don't care who it is. You do this kind of vandalism, and of course, I'm sure it's going to be thousands of dollars in vandalism. You do this kind of vandalism, well, you do hard time. That's my take. Who vandalizes 114 gravestones, for God's sake? 1259, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 108, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So, Gru, you're a big baseball fan, as am I. We run into each other at the ball games from time to time. The trading deadline for the Brewer, it's tomorrow at 3 o'clock, our time. And so, actually, there's a report in the Journal Sentinel that the Brewers are mulling over whether or not they try to make one more trade. Over the weekend, they brought in uh, the third baseman, Mustakas from Kansas City. Big deal. Big, big deal. Gave up Brett Phillips and uh, a pitcher who, Jorge Lopez, who may or may not have developed in anything. Um, but but Moustakis is a rental. He's done at the end of the year, and he'll go into free agency. So the question is, do they do they reach out? Do they try to bring in one more pitcher before the trade deadline ends? And the problem is that... Of the pitchers that are, are rentals, the, fo- the the handful of guys that will be done at the end of the year, there's really not anybody out there that's really a game changer. So you don't want to give up too much for somebody who you're not going to control. Of the pitchers who might be what they call controllable, um, and the ones that Tom Hardicourt in the paper talks about, Tampa Bay's Chris Archer, New York Mets' Zach Wheeler, and Baltimore's Kevin Gaussman, they're, they're controllable in that they have – uh, time on their contract, so you could have them for two or three years. Um, of those, of those three, the, the price would be very high. The teams would would want you know one of the Brewers' very top prospects, people that are probably going to be playing in the major leagues for the Brewers, maybe as soon as the end of this year. So, do you make a deal if you got to give away one of the top three or four prospects? You love Zach Wheeler. Chris Archer would be a mistake. You love Zach Wheeler. Okay, well, they tried to get Wheeler a couple of years ago um, in that uh, when they were going to trade uh, Carlos Gomez, and that one kind of blew up. Wheeler, I can't see it here, but Wheeler would be under under control for at least another year or so. Um, all right, but you would uh, you you would you would give up one of the top prospects for him. Okay, he would be the one you go after, but you're not sure that you want to. Let me see. Wheeler, uh, uh, Archer, Gaussman. Wheeler is making only $1.9 million, but has just one more year left in our arbitration, so you don't have him for another year. I don't give up any of the prospects. I don't, I don't give up any of the top prospects. I'm, I'm not convinced that any of those three are game changers or are, are necessarily better than what you have. 
Right. Oh no, the Kansas City guy for for Brett Phillips to get to get Mustakas from Kansas City for Brett Phillips, who was a great guy, but was in, in, stuck in the outfield, uh, wasn't going to get much playing time. I think that was a great acquisition. I think you just don't want to give up too much for these pitchers, especially with only what fifty, sixty games left in the season. So how many starts does that mean they're going to get? And are they really substantially better than what you have? My advice would be be careful. And the Brewers have played themselves back into it. Three win, three out of four wins in San Francisco, game and a half behind the Cubs, leading in the wild card thing. If you get somebody for something reasonable, that's fine. But if it would require you giving up um, the, the second baseman that they have that's going to probably be playing maybe by the end of the year and some of their, their big big dog young pitchers, absolutely not. You just, just don't do it. But David Stearns gets to make those calls. All right. Let's talk about Pfizer. I am curious as to how you react to this. Pfizer got all sorts of attention at the end of last week because it had been, as it had been speculated about a couple months ago, it came to fruition. Pfizer won the naming rights. They purchased the naming rights to the New Bucks Arena. It is now going to be called the Pfizer Forum. Uh, the amount of money they are paying for the naming rights has not been announced. The, the Bucks had originally said that they were looking for somewhere between seven to ten million dollars a year for the naming rights. I, I don't know what Fiserv ended up paying for that a, at all, but you know it's it's a lot of money. Fiserv, Gru, who's producing the show today and always, do you know what Fiserv even does? You don't. You have no idea what Fiserv does. Okay. Um, well, I think a lot of people might not. It's 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 based out of Brookfield. They've got about 20-some thousand people worldwide and about 900 in Brookfield, which is where their, their home office is. We'll get to that in just a minute. It's a, it's a bank technology firm, and, and what they do is they provide various services. They provide technology to, to banks that help run banks and allows payment of bills and debts online and over mobile phones. So that's they're they're the one that provides that service if you're doing, you know, you're you're at your bank and you're doing payments of your bills. That's what Fiserv does. That's the service that they provide. Like I say 20 some thousand employees, like 25,000 worldwide, 900 in their Brookfield office. So they get the naming rights. All right. So why are we talking about this Jeff? Why is it controversial? Well, a year or so ago, as part of the Foxconn deal, there was language that was put into the Foxconn legislation, which makes Fiserv eligible for $12.5 million in taxpayer money over a five-year period if, if Fiserv agrees to keep its corporate headquarters in Wisconsin and retain up to, I think it was 90% of their employees over this five-year period, Fiserv can get like $2.5 million a year. That's the deal. So they're going to be getting, and nothing's happened. There hasn't been money sent to them yet because they haven't, um, apparently they're, they're still, from what I understand, they are in negotiations as to you know where the new building is going to be located, where the headquarters are going to be. Is it going to stay in Brookfield? Is it going to move to somewhere else? Um, and they haven't settled on where to build a new headquarters. Fiserv talked about slash threatened to move to Georgia 
a year or two ago, which is what led to this. We'll give you $12.5 million over a five-year period if you agree to stay here. And this was controversial, but it kind of got lost in all the, 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 the churn involving the whole Foxconn deal, because it's peanuts compared to Foxconn, and I'm not suggesting $12.5 million is peanuts, but you understand my point, I think. Compared to Foxconn, it is. So the, the deal has gone through. If, if Fiserv decides to build in the state, and everybody believes that they will, they're going to get $12.5 million. This has now become controversial because there's a number of politicians, many, many, many on the left, and a couple on the right who are saying, wait a second. If Fiserv has enough money, and Fiserv is a very, very successful company, um, net profit last year of $1.2 billion on revenue of $5.7 billion, according to the Journal Sentinel. So there's people saying, wait a second, you've got this extremely successful company that's out there. We've already agreed if they keep the jobs in Wisconsin and they keep their headquarters here, we're, we're going to give them $12.5 million in taxpayer funding. And now they're turning around and they're spending, who knows, five, seven, ten million dollars a year on the naming rights for a stadium. All right. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Are these apples and oranges? In other words, all right, you get, I mean, Fox, I mean, Foxconn, Fiserv says, all right, we cut this deal. Um, this is the, we're going to, if we agree to keep the corporate headquarters here, we're going to get these tax subsidies. That's a transaction. Who cares what we do with any sort of money that we might get? Is, is that the way to look at it? Or do people have a legitimate grievance saying, wait a second, you mean we're giving a company $12.5 million a year in taxpayer money to stay here, and they're turning around and spending it on naming rights for a stadium? Is that a legitimate beef? 414-799-1620, does it bother you? We discuss in just a minute, and I'll tell you where I come down on this as well. Hang around. 117, Jeff Wagner, 414-799-1620. If you want to join us, this is WTMJ. 120, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, so this is the controversy. Fiserv, the financial data service firm, they're going to have the naming rights to the new Bucks Arena. It's going to be the Fiserv Forum. As part of the Foxconn legislation last year, state taxpayers are going to be ponying up $12.5 million over a five-year period if Fiserv, and I think they're going to do this, if Fiserv builds their new corporate headquarters somewhere in Wisconsin, they're in Brookfield right now, and keeps 90% of the jobs. Right now, I think they have 900 employees at their home office. Some people are saying, wait a second. Wait, what, what, what's wrong with this picture? We're giving a subsidy to Fiserv, and then they're going to turn around and spend it on naming rights? If, if they've got money to spend on naming rights, they don't need this money. Is that a legitimate objection? 414-799-1620. Let's start with Nate and Racine. Hi, Nate. Hey Jeff. Yeah, I don't I can't really say I have a problem with with how they spend the money once they get it because naming rights, I mean that's a way of marketing, it's a way of advertising. They probably have uh you know had their marketing people study it mm-hmm. and figure out what the ROI is going to be. So we know despite them getting the subsidy, they have a big marketing budget. They're a, a multi-billion dollar company. Right. Uh so I just I can't really have an issue with that. I think you'd almost have to broaden it to to why are they getting the subsidies and, and you know, look, which I know isn't the topic right. today, but do, 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 you know, should they really be getting that subsidy if they're that profitable of a company? Are, are they really 
were they really going to pack up and leave despite right. the fact that their whole employee base and executive team is located in Wisconsin and they leave and they live here? Or was it more of just a, hey, we think we can, you know, right. somehow get this subsidy, so we're just going to go for it. And maybe that's going to create a chain effect where we can't just keep giving all these companies these subsidies. Well, and of course, Nate, that, that's the issue right now that the legislature is facing with, with Kimberly Clark, Clark. Because, you know, Kimberly Clark said, okay, we're going to close two of our, our, of our Wisconsin plants. Uh, now the union has made concessions. So Kimberly Clark is saying to the legislature, tell you what, you give us a bunch of money and we'll reconsider our decision to close one of the plants. Well, you, you then that raises the issue, you know, every time, like, like you were talking about, every time a company threatens that it might move out of state or threatens it's going to close a plant, does that mean you can have a taxpayer bailout? That's the larger issue. Yes. Yep. Uh, no, thanks for the call. And I, I, I will tell you this. I, I agree with Nate. I don't have, I don't have an issue with Fox, with Fox, I'm sorry, Pfizer deciding if, if they get the money. Now keep in mind, right now they haven't gotten a dime. They, they only get the money if they stay in Wisconsin for five years and build the new facility here, which I think they're going to do. I don't think they ever really, I mean, they're a Brookfield based company and I, I understand that we're mobile nowadays and you can pick up and move headquarters. I don't think they ever really intended to move, but without debating the merits, of whether or not they should be getting the, the two and a half million dollars a year. Uh, that, that's not, let's leave that up on the table for a minute. What they do with the money, if they get it, to me, it's, it's not the business of, it's not the business of the state. It's not the business of the taxpayers. If you think this is a good deal, you give them, it doesn't matter to me whether they decide to spend this to help underwrite the cost of naming rights or they decide to take whatever money they're getting and, I don't know, put it towards advertising, whether it's radio advertising or Internet, whatever. I mean, to me, it is apples and oranges. The fundamental question is, is it worth giving a private company, in this case, if they make the commitment to stay, is it worth giving them $12.5 to get them to stay? As long as they fulfill their end of the bargain, well, then, then they're set. I don't think we have a right to say where that, how that money should be spent. It's a call that they get, they end up making. And if they decide for whatever reason it makes business sense to go ahead and spend the money, they've got over a billion dollars in revenue. If they decide it makes sense to spend that in advertising in this fashion, I mean, God bless them. I, I don't think they have a right to say, or we should be saying how exactly you spend the money. This does, though, and we were just talking about this, it does raise this larger issue that we're going to be wrestling with now on a regular basis. Because I'm a proponent of the Foxconn deal. I think Foxconn was a game changer and will be a game changer. At the same time, I don't think that means that we, being the taxpayers of the state, can be held hostage every time a company decides that, you know, we want money or we're going to threaten to leave or we're going to close a facility. To me, Foxconn was a once-in-a-generation type of opportunity to bring jobs into the state and to perhaps turn southeastern Wisconsin into a technology hub. I know some of you are listening and you're rolling your eyes saying, oh, that's never going to happen. Well, maybe you're right, maybe I'm right, but at least I thought Foxconn was worth taking the chance to do that. But every time a company says, well, we might leave um, unless you give us money or we might close this plant. I, I don't think you can do that because then you'd have every business in the state being subsidized. So I think you have to draw a line somewhere. But once you've made the decision that you are going to make that offer, and in this case, 
that that offers Fiserv did what they did. They're entitled to the twelve point five million if they build their facility and stay here for the five years. It's twelve point five million over five years. Once they've done that, that's their money, and they get to spend it, in my opinion, however they want. So I kind of see this this concern as being pretty much of a non-starter. Period. One twenty-six. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. One thirty-five. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It is my own fault. So now I'm getting bombarded with emails, not not on on the square pizza versus rectangular pizza, the rectangular pizza versus circular pizza. Now other people are saying, well, what about burgers? What about like the round burger patty versus like a square burger patty, like White Castle burgers or something, which I actually like White Castle burger patties, to which my answer would be the same thing as to the round versus rectangular pizza. I don't care. If it's good pizza, it's fine. I, I've never, I have never up until this moment, given the whole question, of whether a square patty is better than a round beef patty. I've never given it any thought at all, and I don't think I will. This is when I quickly forget. All right. Now, we, we live in a world where political correctness is the key. We live in a world where Confederate monuments get taken down. Statues that have been up for 150 years have to come down because they may be offensive. We live in a world where dormitories or residence halls or buildings on college campuses that are named for founding fathers have to be renamed because we don't want people to be offended if if that, for example, that member, that founding father was, uh, was for example, a, a slave owner. All right, now I bring this up because Austin, Texas, Austin, Texas is to Texas what Madison, Wisconsin is to Wisconsin. Uh, Austin, Texas is a wonderful, wonderful town. It's It houses, it's a college town. It houses the University of Texas, huge institution. It is also the state capital, just like, you know, Wisconsin, you have the University of Wisconsin in Madison, you've got the state capital in Madison. And it is a vibrant town. It's a fun place. If you ever, if you're ever in Texas and you get a chance to go to Austin, I recommend it. It's a wonderful town, a, a great, vibrant music scene, lots of bars, lots of interesting restaurants. It, it's great. All right. Now, Austin, Texas is named after Stephen F. Austin, who in many respects is viewed as one of the founders of of Texas. He was one of the people who, you know, led the the revolt and led the war and, and got Texas, you know, rec- set the groundwork for Texas to be recognized as a state. And so Austin, Texas is named after him as the father of Texas. Well, it's now become, and Austin is sort of, Texas is a very conservative state, but Austin, just like Madison, uh, it is a liberal enclave in a, a sea of conservatism. All right. Stephen F. Austin also worked against the Mexican government's efforts to abolish slavery in what at the time was the province of, of Texas. Um, Austin believed that slavery was bad, but he understood that slave labor was, at least he believed at the time, 18-whatever, that slave labor was an economic engine that would power prosperity for the territory. So while it is kind of a mixed legacy, 
there because he did other things that suggested that he wasn't a fan of slavery. He he actively worked against abolishing slavery in the province of Texas. Now, this has some people extremely upset, saying, look, how, how can we honor? How do persons of color feel in 2018 where one of the principal cities in the state of Texas is named after a man who actively perpetuated slavery in this territory. Now, this has become an issue because earlier this week, or maybe last week, there's this commission, Austin's Equity Office. How interesting is that? Their Equity Office recommended renaming seven streets who are named after people who had roles in the Confederacy. And they recommended removing three historical markers honoring Confederate history. They have left open for a question, for a moment, the whole question of whether the city itself should be renamed. I mean, do you need to rename the city to, again, adjust for the fact that the founder perhaps shouldn't be honored because of his position on slavery? Now, I bring this up because the city of Madison, very, very similar to Austin, Texas, is named after James Madison. James Madison, fourth president of the United States, served from 1809 to 1817, um, father of the Constitution, pivotal role in drafting and promoting the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights. He was also, um, I think some people look at him as being one of the founders of what would become the modern Democratic Party, big Federalist, that type of thing. So, I mean, b- believing in the, the role of a national government and things like that. Well, James Madison, who was born into a prominent Virginia planting family, who, you know, had this lengthy career, he was also a slave owner. He was also a slave owner. And again, now we're viewing things by, you know, the standards of 1780, 1790, but he was a slave owner. So here becomes the issue. If Austin, Texas, is considering, I know, changing the name of Austin, Texas, because you can't honor somebody who was squishy on the issue of slavery, does does Madison, Wisconsin, need to consider changing its name because you cannot name something? How can we, in 2018, honor someone who, while unquestionably founding father, This country, the shape of this country does not look like it does without somebody like James Madison, but he was a slave owner. Are we insulting persons of color? Do we need to change, or is this political correctness run amok? 414-799-1620. And if you think this is just pie in the sky, I mean, seriously, I'm reading the story about Austin, and I'm thinking, well, if Austin is considering this, should not Madison be doing it? And by the way... There is a James Madison, I don't know if it's high school or junior high school, out in the Janesville area, and there's at least one student who's been pressuring the school board to change the name of that school for precisely this reason. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. How far do we go in sanitizing our history? Right, Confederate monuments are coming down. Streets are being renamed. Many of the founding fathers, for example, were in fact slave owners. You've already seen, we, we no longer have 
you know, the Jackson Jefferson Day dinners. Democrats don't do that. That used to be their equivalent of the Lincoln Day dinners. They, they don't do that because of concerns both with Jackson and with Jefferson and their past. All right, so how far do you carry this? Do we rename Madison? Danny in West Dallas. Danny, you're on WTMJ. Hello. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Oh, be careful. There's a lot of dumb things out there. <laughs> well, yeah, I know. I'm, I think half of my job in life is chronicling human stupidity. Um, the problem that I have with it is plain and simple. Where does it stop? Do we rename Washington, D.C.? Yep. For, because, you know, Washington was a slave owner. Yep. What about Jefferson County? Jefferson was a slave owner. Yep. Just because we don't agree with something that happened 200 years ago in our history doesn't mean that we have to go ahead and try to totally forget about it now. Or or, or sort of whitewash it, saying, okay, let, exactly. let's take somebody like James Madison, fourth president of the United States, clearly a, a great man, a visionary man who owned slaves, which was acceptable at that time, back in the 1700s. Right. Do we now say all the things that you accomplished, that those go out the window because of what you did? And so your answer would be, Really, really dumb, and Austin, Texas stays, Madison, Wisconsin stays. Yes, um, and, you know, only because the thing that scares me is, you know, I look at how that that old saying of, you know, those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. If you forget about the slavery that we've had and other issues, too, okay, what's to stop that from happening then in the future? Well, right, we have to pretend it never occurred. Okay, thanks to call, 414-799-1620. All right, now, now seriously, I, I, I throw this out there because this is a legitimate debate that is going on in Austin, Texas now. And my first question was, well, Austin, Texas, how about Madison, Wisconsin? Do we need to change these names? Should we consider to continue to honor people who are an important part of American history but who may have had flaws, especially judged by the standards of 2018, 414-799-1620. Don't ask me what you would change the name of Madison to, but is it time to do away with the name? We're back in just a minute. If you're on the line, please hold on. 146, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 148, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Now, if you're just tuning in, you're wondering, what is he talking about? Well, Austin, Texas, Stephen F. Austin, founding father of Texas. There is a push that is seriously being considered by the Equity Commission, whatever that might be, down in Austin, Texas, to rename the city of Austin, all because Stephen F. Austin was squishy on the issue of slavery. Back in the 1830s, he apparently believed that in order for, Texas wasn't a state then, for the province of Texas to develop what you needed is you needed to depend on slave labor, so he actively worked against efforts in Mexico to do away with slavery. Well, that's now become controversial, and people are saying, hey, do you, yeah, how can we continue to have this this town, which is very much like you know, uh, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, how can we continue to have this town named after somebody who was pro-slavery? Which raises the question, what about James Madison, fourth president of the United States? He was, in fact, a, a slave owner himself. And if you think this is just pie in the sky, last year there was a, a young lady who goes to James Madison High School in Madison who was trying to get the high school to change its name. Hear what she said. Um, she does this paper. She said, I started doing some research into the school's namesake, James Madison. She took offense to the name and the legacy attached to it 
because she found out that he was a slave owner, and she's vowed to get something done. Because it's my history and my ancestors were slaves, I don't want a slave slave owner representing who I am in the modern day, which then raises the question, well, okay, if you're going to change or consider changing the name of Austin, Texas, should we consider changing the name of Madison, Wisconsin? 414-799-1620. Michael in Bayside. Hi, Michael. Hi. No, we should not. Um, I, you use a phrase called sanitized history, and that's a scary phrase because if you sanitize it enough, it's no longer a real historical account. I have no problem with elevating new people to hero status. I have no problem with naming new streets. New names or naming streets like 23rd, name it something new. Right. Give us some, some more heroes. But don't tear down what we already have. Give us the warts and all. But I've never heard anybody talk about uh, Martin Luther King's womanizing on Martin Luther King Day. So let's focus on the good people have done. Learn about some of the bad things that they've done. Learn from it and move on. Right, and, and recognize that these are these are tributes, but people are in fact imperfect, especially when you try to judge their lives by the standards of a couple hundred years later. It's it, it's exactly. not like somebody is a current slave owner or is calling, you know, for return to slavery or whatever. That you, you judge somebody by what they did in the times in which they lived, right? In some cases, sometimes you can say even in the times you lived, you know, judging by our standards, it was wrong on slaves. We can say that. Right. We can say he wasn't perfect, but to say we have to change everything, well, Steve Jobs was a jerk. Did this person do the research on an eye? Uh, Apple device, well, then they're hypocrites. Just, just stop it. Right. There's no well, to stop somewhere. Right. No, thank, well, see, I mean, and I just, I think of so many instances like this. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the controversy. Uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder, who who wrote the, the, the whole series of children's books that, that became the Little House on the Prairie series. Now, these were books that, you know, starting when they first got published, I want to say starting in like the 1930s, these were things that young people read. This was one of the, the gateway sort of things. And, and for years and years and years, the American, decades, the American Librarians Association has honored, you know, has, has given an award. It's like the Laura Ingalls Wilder Award for promoting, you know, literacy among children, something that I think we all agree. Well, they've done away with that this year because they went back and they read the content of the books and, you know, she, she referred to Native Americans as Indians. And she had an arguably Eurocentric view of settlers, you know, settling towns and they're dealing with the, the, with the, the Native Americans and things like that. And apparently some people have decided that is offensive by the standards of 2018. So now we can't have her name on prizes anymore. Give me a break. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Dave in Grafton. Hi, Dave. Hi, Jeff. Yeah, I think this is a case of uh, the perpetually offended trying to find uh, something to do. Um, in regard to that student down in Janesville, James Madison's legacy is not of a slave owner. Um, people didn't even know he was a slave owner until this was brought up. His legacy is for many other good things that he did. And why, why does this always seem to revolve around slavery? That's a very small... Um, uh, part of our our nation's history, unproud of it as we may be, it's just a, a sliver of some of these um, men's and women's contributions. I think we should look at it as a whole. Now, if that student in Janesville wanted to change the name of her high school to perhaps a uh, U.S. Marine that was a hero in Afghanistan 
and uh, wanted to update things, you know, it might have some merit. But otherwise, it, it's a case of the perpetually offended. Right, right. right. Thanks for the, the politically correct and, and the perpetually offended. Yeah, at some point in time, I, I just think you, you have to judge people by the totality of of their lives. Now, I understand that the, the Confederate issue to me is a more difficult one because you know, I, and for example, I the, the rebel flag. I, I I think in 2018, because I understand the whole idea of Southern heritage, but the the reality is that that is such a controversial sort of thing. Plus, it, it's the rebel flag. I don't understand why the Confederate flag needs to fly over state houses. So I, I think that that to me, that's not really political correctness. It's just kind of a reflection of where we are. But for the, this larger question and the idea that we're going to try to sanitize history and and we're going to ban books, we're 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 not gonna we're not gonna teach. You know, Mark Twain, because you can't read Mark Twain because he used terms which are, are offensive. I no question, offensive, but they were terms that were used in his time. We, we can't teach those anymore. We've got to remove those books or we've got to pull to kill a mockingbird out of high schools because some people might be offended again with the use of a certain word or with the depiction of you know, uh, racism in a southern town in the 1930s. You have to, you cannot sanitize history. Now, I am not arguing that in certain cases, historical figures, you know, might not be worthy of being acknowledged. But I think you have to be extremely careful when you start doing that. And as far as I'm concerned, that the People's Republic of Madison should stay Madison, just like Austin, Texas should stay Austin. And just like People should continue to read the Little House on the Prairie books to their children because while it might be Eurocentric, it gives you a flavor of what life was like in a certain time in American history. Just saying. 156, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 208, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. So over the weekend, I was, that doesn't matter where I was, but I, I, I was out in public. And a gentleman came up to me and said, Mr. Wagner, and I said, please call me Jeff. And he said, I just want to tell you, I, he said, of, of all the people who do talk shows around here, I like yours the best. I said, it's very kind of you. Thank you. And I appreciate you listening. And then he said, you know, what, can I talk to you for a minute? And I said, sure. And he, he proceeded to, you know, tell me about the, the, the issue, his number one issue, which was he, he's a retired teamster. And he's concerned that his pension that he uses to live on is, is going to go away. And he said, I know you've talked about this in the past, but this is really kind of coming to the head. And we sat there and we talked about it for about five or ten minutes. I said, you know what, I'm going to look into this. And I, I know we've discussed it in the past, but I will, I will, I promise you, I'm going to tee this up on a topic. Actually, somebody on Friday was asking me, where do you get your, your content and topic ideas? And I said, well, a lot of, I said, you'd be surprised at how much comes from tips or suggestions or comments I get from the, the folks who are from, people who are kind enough to, to listen to the program. So I, I do want to take up the issue this gentleman raised with me, and there, there's not an easy solution to it, but I'm, I'm curious as to how you feel. Let me back into this. The One of, I think, the big regrets that Paul Ryan is going to have as he leaves office uh, is that he's never been able to effectively get the type of meaningful Social Security reform that he wanted to accomplish. Why is that? Well, okay, I mean, Social Security is facing a huge problem 
in the relatively near future. I mean, Social Security, when it was created, people did not live as long as they live now. And you had an enormous number of people paying in, and you had a smaller number of people paying out. Well, life sp- the population has increased. Life spans have increased. And so now, again, in Social Security, you have an account. But as they talk about, that's not like your own bank account. The money that is used to pay people who are on Social Security now comes from extra money they have in the Social Security account and money that people who are working pay into it. So you have an account that says, okay, it's a promise to pay. When you qualify for Social Security, you will draw money out of it. The problem is that as people live longer, you have fewer people paying in and more people taking out. And that can only go on for a certain period of time before ultimately you you run out of money. That's just if there's less money. I mean, just think about it. Simple math. If there's less money coming in than money going out, sooner or later, all the money's gone. That's just the, the way it works. And because nobody likes talking about this, and the idea of reducing Social Security benefits is just, it's just the third rail. You touch it, you're electrified. Politicians don't want to deal with this. It's something that, a problem we keep kicking down the road, down and down the road. All right. We are starting to see that though in private and public pension funds. Now, most people, it used to be in a certain period of time when my grandfather retired from where he retired from in 1959, um, there were there were private pensions. My grandfather, you know, went on a pension until and until he passed away in 1968, he he collected the pension. And my grandmother, you know, collected you know until she passed away, you know, she collected a survivor's benefit. She had money coming in. That was how we took care of retirees. They also had Social Security, but but the principal source of income was the pension that my grandfather could work for this company for his entire life. Nowadays, most people don't have pensions. If you are a union member, you know, maybe you have a, a pension. If you are a government employee, at least some government employees, maybe you will have a pension. But for most people, you're kind of on your own. I have a Kind of think I have the first like four or five years that I worked for the the old journal communications and it went through various iterations. We had a we had a pension fund. So I think when I turn sixty five, I get like five or six hundred dollars a month. When I it's something like that, which is I'm not I'm not turning up my nose on it, but it it's it, it's not like you're going to live on five or six hundred dollars a month. Now some people who worked for the company for a lot longer than I did, and again they we changed from that pension plan to like a four hundred one k thing after that. But there's some people that you know are, are living and they they've got relatively sizable you know pension payouts, and, and that's great if you have it. The problem is that a lot of these pension accounts, whether they're public or private, are grossly underfunded. And perhaps the most classic example of that is the the central state's pension fund, which I think Jimmy Hoffa, this used to cover Teamsters. And um, you had, first of all, it was kind of the mob that had its, its fingers in the central state's pension fund. And then later on, it became, I don't know, the vagaries of, of Wall Street. 
what happened was if you were if you were a trucker, if you were a teamster, you were covered through this. And the central states pension fund, and I'm kind of oversimplifying this, but bear with me for a minute. There were all these different trucking firms, right? It, it wasn't just one company, but there were all these different trucking firms that had deals with the, the union teamster drivers. So all these different trucking companies would pay into the pension fund. So it wasn't just journal communications paying into all the journal employees. All these trucking companies, they would pay into this fund. And it became a very, very large fund. What happened is, beginning in 1980, um, they started having deregulation, where more and more of the the trucking companies you know, simply dropped out of this. To give you an idea, 1980, um, there were four working teamsters for every retiree, right? Four people paying in, one person retired and drawing benefits. By uh, today, you've got five retirees for every worker. So the money going out is a lot more than the money coming in. And so you look at this, where are those benefits coming from? Where they're coming from, Uh, Any surplus, any extra money that's been accumulated over the years, plus the amount of money that's coming in. But as we were talking about earlier, if you're paying out more than the amount of money that's coming in, sooner or later you go broke, right? That's That's just basic math. And the estimates are that by 2025, by 2025, this this pension fund is going to be broke. It's not going to have money to meet its obligations. So they're wrestling with where does this money come from? Now, there is, just like there's the, you know, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation that protects people um, in banks if the banks go belly up, there is a a federal pension board um, that protects insolvent pension plans. The problem with that is it only pays probably about a third, maybe less, of than, than what the normal benefit would be. So if the pension fund goes belly up, yes, you can get some federal relief, but you're only going to get a third of what you were paying. And they say you know, th- there's just a limit to that. Even more importantly is the federal bailout legislation, that that pension fund is getting re- – that, that's going to go broke too – in the relatively near future, because, again, it's paying out more money than it has. So you have a number of these workers who've paid all their life into something, and as a result of various things, deregulation, the, in the case of the, the Central States Pension Fund, they, the trustees, made some really, really bad financial decisions back in 2007 and 2008. Remember we had this recession? The The fund was... Well, the fund was invested in all sorts of things that it probably shouldn't have been invested for. In a prudent, if you were a prudent investor, you wouldn't be as heavily into stocks and things as they were. And it got killed in the recession of two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and it hasn't come back. So now you have this situation where you have an enormous number of people who have been, you know, depending, saying, "Okay, this is this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to live." And they're looking square in the face of there not being the money there to do this. So there is an incredible pressure trying to be brought on Congress to say, bail out the the pension fund. Take taxpayer dollars and one way or another, 
figure out a way to make this solvent and to guarantee workers who were promised whatever, you know, $1,300 a month, that they're not going to have to live on $400 a month. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Do, Do workers who invested in these private pensions, do they have an expectation that that money that they put in, or at least the things that they counted on being there for them when they retired, is it reasonable to say, we have an expectation that's going to be there? And if the private pension company can't do it, does the government have an obligation to step in? 414-799-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'll tell you what I think about this and what the solution is, but I am legitimately curious how do you handle something like this? Because it is, it is a crisis. There, there's no question about it. And again, I was talking to this gentleman over the weekend. He's looking at square in the face. I know there's a lot of people that are looking the square in the face, and it could be happening to a number of other people as well. What is the federal government's role, if any, in helping bail out these pension funds that are woefully underfunded? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. Two nineteen, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 222, Jeff Wagner, WTM Jeff. Here's a text. Jeff, why won't the company that these employees work for or uh, make the payment of the difference so this doesn't happen? I am on a pension, and that's my fear that once I retire in 12 years, since I work for the city of Milwaukee, and you know, you know how they run the city. Well, the difference with the public pensions, and by the way, this, this is a time bomb that's ticking too, but at least with the public pensions, and I say at least, they can always increase taxes or, or do whatever. The private company, so why isn't there enough money in the Teamster Fund? Well, for example, a lot of these companies, that the Teamster Fund had a lot of these trucking companies that, that paid into this. Many of those companies just went out of business or they, they, you know, they became non-union or whatever. They stopped contributing. So you have, what's the phrase they use? They call them, I think, orphans is the phrase they use. I mean, you have a number of people who are collecting through the fund and the employer long gone. So there's just, the problem is there's not enough people paying in to justify, to, to account for the money that's coming out. So what do you do? Let's start with Gary and Merrill. Gary, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yes, good morning. Hi. Or good afternoon. Yes, I'm drawing off the uh, Central States Fund. Uh, the government has its hands uh, in Central States. Uh, they've had it in for a long time. They do have two or three federal people that are on the board of the right. central states. And during the big recession, uh, the government required central states to invest its money with Goldman Sachs that was uh, going bankrupt, and Goldman Sachs proceeded to lose about $8 billion out of the fund. Right. So then the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation is just what it said. They, these uh, pensions have been paying into it for 30 years, and now when it comes time to start paying out or the government uh it took that liability now the government says no we don't we don't want to uh, right or we don't have enough money we don't have enough money so we got to cut the back here so what do they i mean so what do you think they should do is this one where you think because of the promises that were made that the taxpayers and that that's what it is we talk about the government we need to fund we need to to fund that for the employees (laughs) it's a hard question yeah (laughs) no I think people like me should probably take a big hit, but I think the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation 
however they get the money should have a liability there mm-hmm. because that is what they that is what they had promised. Can, can I ask you? I mean, how much do you get a month? Can I ask you? Twenty six hundred. Twenty, which is close to the maximum, right? Well, I think there's some of them are up around thirty two hundred. Okay, right. And what are they proposing reducing it to? Like seven hundred bucks or something like that? Well, there was a a plan, and the government rejected the plan about two right. years ago. It would have. Uh, Cut the pensions about fifty percent. Right, got it. Yeah, okay. Thanks. And, it's, and and this, I mean, see, this is this is the problem that that's that's out there because you have people that the retirement is you, you you plan for retirement. You say, okay, this is how much money I am going to need. We've paid into this. I'm counting on this pension to be there. And now there's a question of it not being there. Um, what he was, what Gary was talking about is a couple years ago there was this idea of let's dramatically cut back the the amount of monthly pension that we're paying to current retirees with the idea that we can extend this moving forward. You know, we'll pay them less. That'll make it last them long, longer. That that got shot down because candidly a lot of the retirees were like, well we don't we don't want to do that. We we can't expect to take that hit. But what we've done now is we've kicked this problem down the road. Dave in Waukesha. Dave you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey Jeff, how you doing? Well well thank you. What do you think? What do they do here? No way. I mean, bottom line, I mean, realistically, there's no guarantees in anything. And where does it stop them? I mean, mm-hmm. does the federal governments are bailing out states like Illinois and, I think I was telling your screener, or California, or whatever, where they right. grossly underfunded their, you know, the, them down in the private sector. Holy cow. You know what? If I lose my job, I'm 59. I lose my job, there's no guarantees for me. I mean, it's just it's kind of ludicrous. I mean, I don't understand the rationale. Right. Why? No. No. I guess, no. Thanks. I mean, that, that and that's the idea. The the rationale is you have. I guess the rationale would be you have people who, over the course of their lifetime, paid into something, thinking there was going to be an expectation on the backside, and now that money is gone. Do do you do you bail them out, Tony in Milwaukee? Tony, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Yeah, Hi, I'm one of the guys. I only had like a. Ten and a half years, and so I get a little bunch of peanuts. But um, what scared me at the last, I went to the last meeting about two years ago, or, and um, they said there were, for every five retirees, there's one worker. So right. if they can't improve that at all, I don't see, even if the government gave them some money, they'd have to keep giving them money. Right. So, I mean, this is, I mean, you, you just see it as, as a death spiral. It's not going to work out. It, it, there's no way the math works, is what you're saying. Right. They, they tried to get the people to, you know, give, you know, I, I think the people that are making it 2000 and over, that should give up a little because I feel sorry for the guys I worked to because we owe, what we did, we owe, instead of taking raises, we added, we, we took money for the pension from the company. And so the guys that retired early, they got that. Now they should be given to some of the younger guys that, that we're doing that also. Right, right. Thanks. And again, you're talking about, I mean, the proposal that got shot down was we'll cut back the payments that we're making in an effort to try to extend the thing longer. And, and that, that ended up getting shot down. Bottom line of all this, th- this is a mess. And it, and it's, it's hitting the, the folks with central states really, really hard. Here, here's what I think. Do, do I think the government can bail out the thing? No, I, I, I just don't. Because where do you end up drawing the line? Now, I, I don't mean that there's nothing that you can you can do. I, I do think, and one of the proposals that's floating out there is maybe 
being able to make some loans to the, the union to be able to sustain this. But the key to that is it, you have to restructure it. Nothing is going to happen unless you can work out an agreement where the people who are drawing money take less. That That's just the math of it. If you can work something like that out, then I, I guess I think it's perfectly reasonable to say that maybe we can work out some low-interest loans or something like that to help underwrite the cost of it. But you, you have to have some plan. And as our last caller made the point so eloquently, if you've got four or five retirees to every worker, that that's not a sustainable sort of situation. So I think you've got to be creative in looking at this. It starts with reducing the monthly payments in an effort to continue this. But I bring this up because it's not just the folks at central states that are dealing with this. This is the Social Security problem in a nutshell. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but sooner than you think. 229, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 237, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, WTMJ, that's us, and KTI Country are fired up to share the greatest dessert in Wisconsin. My colleague, Karen D'Alessandro, and yours truly, we will be handing out six packs of those famous cream puffs to the first 300 cars lined up in the Wisconsin State Fair parking lot starting at 6 a.m. Wednesday. Now, I need to be clear here, we start handing them out at 6 a.m. I have no idea what time people actually start lining up, but the first 300 cars I will give you or Karen will give you personally. We will put a six-pack of cream puffs into your hands. And then once you get them, you can do whatever you want. I always ask people, what are you going to do with them? And some people say that they're taking them to work, and some people say that they're taking them home, and some people have coolers to store them. And I think some people just plan to eat them on the way home. Whatever you want to do with them, that's okay. Um, but it's the cream puff of Palooza. Stop by for your chance to win. And, of course, this is Wednesday, August 1st. The State Fair opens on Thursday. I will be broadcasting live most, well, many of the weekdays of the fair, starting on Thursday. So please come by our, our fishbowl and stop by and say hi. I try to go out during the breaks, which, crew, you haven't worked with me at a State Fair yet. It's I, I, I confess that... I start to drive the producers crazy because I'm not. I, I like to talk to people who stop by and things like that. And I'll be hearing, Jeff, you've got a live read. Jeff, you, the music's starting. Jeff, get in here. Do the show. I get distracted a little bit. But come on by, and it's a good distraction. Stop off and say hi. All right. I am getting ready to climb back on my soapbox because I am frustrated. And and I don't know. There's no end in sight to this. And I don't I don't have an easy answer. But what we're doing doesn't work. Uh, what, a month and a half ago, you had the horrible story about the Milwaukee police officer who lost his life in a car chase. What happened is you have the car that takes off, starts running from the police. They start to pursue. The driver of the Milwaukee police car loses control of it, and the other police officer who was the passenger. He's killed as a result of this. And you will remember, after that happened, we have the, the press conference where you have the district attorney and you've got the mayor and you've got the police chief all talking about how the, the, the fact that you have people who regularly run from authorities, Milwaukee police, West Dallas police, Brookfield police, sheriff's department, people run. That is now what passed for, I guess, a common practice. People run from the police. Now, some people would say that means we shouldn't chase. I don't buy into that. I, I don't at all. But people continue to run, and all these dignitaries that were up on the stage, they were all saying, look, well, this this has to stop. People need to know we're going to go after you, we're going to catch you, but you are putting people's lives in danger. 
and yet the chases still go on. Two stories from over the weekend. Um, Here's one early Sunday morning. Uh, This is the way the Journal Sentinel reports it. A car fleeing a traffic stop by the West Dallas Police Department struck a pedestrian in Milwaukee early Sunday morning. According to the West Dallas Police, the pedestrian was stuck in the struck in the 5800 block of West Blue Mound Road, so 60th and Blue Mound. An officer witnessed the incident and rendered aid to the pedestrian, who was later taken to the hospital with serious injuries. The fleeing vehicle did not stop after hitting the pedestrian. Of course it didn't, because whatever person was driving that car didn't care about anything other than himself or herself. Fleeing vehicle did not stop after hitting the pedestrian. The car continued eastbound and has not yet been located. So the guy got away. The car had fled from a traffic stop in the early morning hours in Waukesha County. Law enforcement officers pursued the vehicle. The chase was terminated. Around 2 a.m., a West Dallas police officer saw the same vehicle near the city limits at South 70th Street. The officer tried to stop the vehicle near 66th and West Blue Mound Road. The car fled again. So this is somebody that's driving the cars, eluding the police. The officer engaged in a short pursuit. The fleeing vehicle swerved head-on into westbound traffic on Blue Mound Road. As the car swerved back towards its lane, it struck the pedestrian. The incident remains under investigation. Again, that the driver, at least temporarily, has gotten away. Pedestrian hurt. You have somebody driving this car in a reckless fashion, fleeing from not one, but two separate police officers over the course of hours, hits a pedestrian, drives off, and is probably happily laughing to themselves that they got, quote-unquote, got away with this for the moment. Well, the story doesn't stop there. Here's a different one. This is according to today's TMJ4. Milwaukee police arrested two teenagers after they led police on a chase and crashed a stolen car. The crash happened around 11 p.m., this would be last night, in the intersection of 60th Street and Mitchell. According to police, an officer from the Specialized Patrol Division saw a car that was taken in an armed robbery in the area of 35th and North. So I presume that is an armed carjacking. All right? The officer attempted to stop the vehicle, but... The driver and passenger fled from officers. All right, so you've got a car that is stolen in what, I again, I'm assuming is a car jacking. The police see it. They try to stop it. The car takes off. Officers pursue the vehicle for several miles. At 60th and Mitchell, the fleeing vehicle collided with another vehicle that was driving in the area. Police arrested, wait for it, an 18-year-old and a 16-year-old at the scene. So you have these two teenagers who have been involved in an armed carjacking, and then they're fleeing. Both teens received minor injuries and were conveyed to a local hospital for a precautionary medical evaluation. We'd want to make sure, of course, the little darlings aren't too hurt. Um, two citizens in the other vehicle received minor injuries. So another two days, another two car chases. Carjacking, take off. Car flees from a traffic stop take off, end up hitting a pedestrian. The message that our local leaders were trying to get out six or seven weeks ago about don't run because we will catch you and bad things will happen, apparently that message isn't getting out because on a almost it seems like a daily basis, there are at least 
one or two stories like this of people who have committed crimes, driving stolen cars, driving cars that they've carjacked, taking off when the police try to find them, hitting other cars, hitting pedestrians, etc. All right, if you can't tell, I am just frustrated by this because this could be you. It, it could be me. We could be out there on the streets, and next thing you know, you have some idiot driving a stolen car, drives through a red light or whatever, and hits your car, hits my car, hits your wife's car, hits your kid's car. You know, fill in the blank. And we're not doing a good job of stopping this. Now, I understand some people would say, well, maybe this means the answer is don't chase. I don't buy that because, okay, you don't, you let these carjackers go. You don't think that they're going to carjack another car tonight or tomorrow or the next day. You don't think that sooner or later is somebody's going to shoot somebody else. No, you have to get these people off the streets. You have to chase. You have to catch them. But obviously this message is not getting out. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I I know I have said this before, and maybe this is just my continuing frustration, but I, I think we have reached a point where we just have to collectively say, just like we collectively, we have zero tolerance nowadays for drunk driving. Now, 25 years ago, drunk driving was kind of a joke. Now we all recognize it's dangerous, and most of us are just death on drunk driving. I, I think the same thing has to do with has to come with people who run from the cops, and that is why I firmly believe that this starts with the state legislature. Anybody who flees knowingly and intentionally flees from the police, regardless of why it is they run, I think it's a mandatory minimum prison term, maybe three years. Boom. You run from the cops, you get caught, you go to prison. And then, you know, if there's other things, if it's a carjacking, if you're running because you're a drug dealer, whatever, that gets added to it. But will we finally say enough is enough? And it starts, I think, with mandatory minimum penalties. Run from the cops, you go to jail, you go to prison. And if you're a juvenile and you do the same thing, well, then you go to secure detention. But this idea that, hey, this is a lark, it's harmless to run from people, this is the common thing, we got to stop this. And I don't think there's any way of stopping it other than warehousing the people who are doing it. Then the message will ultimately get out. 414-799-1620, is this cruel? Is this unusual? Is this too harsh? Or is it time to do something before more people are injured when it seems like every one of these thugs and creeps and losers decides that this is what they're going to do, take off instead of pulling over? 246, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you're on the line, please hold on. In a chase. You have all the officials come out and say, hey, we're serious about this. The message has to go out. People cannot do this. And on a, it seems like almost daily basis, you have people continue to run from the police. Just in the last, what, 48 hours or so, you have a car involved in a carjacking, uh, 16 and 18 year old kid. They take off on the police. Um, they end up getting caught. You have another situation where there's, um, somebody who's hit a pedestrian as a result of not one, but two chases driving a stolen car, I believe. And, and again, they've managed to get away temporarily, but this, this goes on on a daily basis. People who just run from the police at some point in time, we have to say enough is enough. And I think that means Mandatory jail terms. There's no excuse ever for running from police. You endanger the lives of the police. You endanger the lives of innocent people along the streets. 
It's just, it is just so reckless to do that that I think if you get caught, boom, you need to go to prison and you need to go to prison for several years. Jason in Mequon. Jason, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, yeah, good afternoon, Jeff. Yeah, something should have been done about this a very, very long time ago. But the only problem is Bob Donovan can only sit there in a soapbox preaching for so many hours, you know, about this that should have been done a long time ago. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, you get people like Mayor Barrett saying, oh, three, four times, it's only a joyride, nothing to see here, just let them go on their merry way. Well, so I don't... We need- yeah, I mean, thank, I mean, see, I, I, in fairness, Jason, I look, Tom Barrett, the, the the previous chase policy was something cooked up with Mayor Tom Barrett and the former police chief. This would be the, the police, the chase policy that they put into effect a number of years ago, which essentially tied the hands of Milwaukee Police Department officers in, in chasing it. It made it extremely difficult. You had to you essentially had to know that the person had committed a violent felony before you could chase. And the reality is, most times the cops don't know why somebody is running. They don't know if they've got a body in the trunk. They don't know if there's drugs. They don't know if there's guns. All they know is the person is running. Barrett and Ed Flynn came up with this cockamamie scheme. It was dumb. It, it, it just was. And, and maybe it was well-intentioned at the time because they didn't want to put civilians at risk, but it didn't work. And all it did was create a, a subgeneration of criminals who got it in their mind that, hey, running was a good thing, and now we're going to do it. So we are kind of reaping that. But I, I think in the mayor's defense, mark the tape on that, I, I mean, I think he's come around. I, I mean, I, I think he realizes that what was happening wasn't working. I, and so, I mean, I all right, you can be wrong, and I give people credit for recognizing they were wrong. Now we realize that we have a problem. So I don't I, – I just – in having this conversation, I don't even want to look back and point blame and point fingers as to why it's as bad as it is now. But it's really bad. It's really bad now to the point that if you are driving on the streets, and we're not just talking about the city of Milwaukee. You know, we're talking about all over this area. It You are in danger. You take your lives in your own hand because you never know when you're going to have one of these thugs who's driving 85 miles an hour after carjacking a car that runs through a red light and might put your life in danger. Or you're crossing the intersection, all of a sudden you see one of these people driving at 80 or 90 miles an hour who could care less if they hit you or not. The only way we're going to get a handle on this is, I think, to start taking the people who are doing this off the street, putting them out of commission, and, and yeah, warehousing them for a while. And if that means, oh, it's mass incarceration or whatever, so be it. So be it. Let the word go out that we're seriously not going to tolerate it. And the truth is, it isn't going to happen unless and until the legislature gets involved and passes mandatory minimum penalties saying, if you do this, you are going to prison. Let's take the discretion out of the hands of the judges who will be reluctant to impose these sentences. Oh, this is, he's just a misunderstood 16-year-old. Garbage. All right, you're 16 years old, you're driving a stolen car, you go 85 miles an hour, you blow through a red light, boom, you hit somebody, yes. Or even if you don't hit somebody, boom, you go to prison. That's right, because people don't do that kind of stuff. And as long as you allow judges' discretion, it's not going to happen. Legislature, wake up, pass some of these laws, and let's try to make the streets safer. It's 2.54. When we come back, we're going to find out what John McCure has on his mind on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Please stick around.